0: Thank you.
1: Before we get into the message this morning let's uh let's bow in prayer father we thank you and that we can sing about the deep love that you have for us through the person of jesus christ we uh we just revel in that or ought to father i think that would impact greatly what it is that we're going to talk about this morning if, if that were really something that we we felt right to the depths of our being. So through your Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would take those thoughts that we have sung, that we have praised you with, and that you would bridge them into what we're going to look into your word with as well, we pray. Do the work that you need to in our hearts, we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Steve, when he phoned me up, said that uh, right now you guys are working through your mission statement, uh, helping people reach their God-given potential in Jesus Christ. And when I thought of that, I I immediately kind of thought of him, and I'm a strange animal, I know, but this is where my mind went, was back to one of our early church fathers who said, the glory of God is... A human fully alive. Now, he didn't say human. He spoke in less politically correct terms. Man fully alive is what he said. But uh, as I thought about that, I also thought about one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It comes out of Philippians chapter 1. And it says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. That's where we're going to center our thoughts this morning. That verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. I don't know how much we think about citizenship these days. I know when I lived up in northern Alberta, it really wasn't a a big thought. You know, you went and got your passport in case you needed to travel out of the country. But you didn't travel out of the country very often. Not from there anyway. Uh, down here, different story. We moved down here and now, you know, we go across for gas, right? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's important to have some kind of papers that prove your citizenship. All of a sudden, that's pretty important stuff. Uh, of course, down south of the border right now, they're talking about some big things like DACA and Dreamers and paths to citizenship and. Suddenly, citizenship means something, doesn't it? Well, if you were a resident of Philippi in the first century, when Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to them, citizenship meant something there, too. They were Roman citizens. And that was a big deal, to be a Roman citizen was you had kind of reached a level of being that that commoners, and slaves, and those kinds of people just didn't have. Now these people had often gained that because right outside of Philippi were these plains where some major battles had been fought uh, the previous century from where Paul had written this letter to very major battles had been fought there. One of them was the aftermath of all of the parties, all of the factions that had fought when Julius Caesar got assassinated. Octavian, one of the generals, when his armies won, he wound up being the new emperor, Caesar Augustus, the emperor that was around when Jesus was born. And... Most of the people that fought in those armies were either slaves or mercenaries. Most of them were not Roman citizens. But because the battles were held right there near Philippi, and all of those people were there, it would have been costly to move them somewhere else. And because uh, the Octavian wanted to gift something to his winning mercenaries, He granted them citizenship and land right in Philippi. And so here are these people now, a generation or two later, having had their grandparents or their parents be the people that had fought in these wars and been granted citizenship. And they are now the residents in Philippi. Roman citizenship means something. When you came from parents who were slaves or grandparents who were slaves, and you now have the rights of a citizen, that's significant. They valued that. Not only that, but there was a major highway that ran directly from Rome all the way across to Philippi. This is the modern-day remains of some of that highway. All of the traffic would move. It was a direct link right to Rome. And a lot of the values would travel across. In fact, that was kind of how Philippi viewed themselves, as little Rome, a Roman colony town. They wanted to be just like Rome and live out the values right there. One of the examples that we have of This in our Bibles is found in Acts chapter 16. You don't necessarily need to turn there right now. I'll summarize the story, but in Acts chapter 16, we hear the birth story of the church at Philippi. Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey, and they get to Philippi, and they go and meet with some people, and they find Lydia, a prominent woman in the community. And she accepts Jesus and begins this house church uh, in her home, and Paul and Silas stay in Philippi and continue to do ministry because of that. They're, uh, they're accosted by a fortune teller girl who's a slave to some slave owners. She's been demon possessed and granted the, the gift of telling fortunes through that. And she keeps shouting things at Paul and Silas as they minister through the community. And finally, Paul Says, no, we need to do something about this. And he delivers this girl from this demon. But now her abilities are gone, her supernatural abilities. And the people that gained money from her supernatural abilities are not happy about this. And so they work up all of the the community people to say, these are bad guys, these Paul and Silas. And they beat them and they put them in prison. And if you know the story, you know that that night there's an earthquake and Paul and Silas are freed along with all the other prisoners and the jailer's about to commit suicide because he thinks they've all escaped. And Paul says, no, don't do that. We're all here. And the jailer takes them and he winds up in his whole household becoming Christians that night. And then the next morning, the city officials send word to the jailer And they say, you know, as guys, we beat, put in jail last night, release them and send them out of town. And Paul goes, I don't think so. I'm a Roman citizen. Silas is a Roman citizen. We have certain rights as Roman citizens. If you city officials want to just easily dismiss us like that, we got another thought coming. You need to come down and escort us out of town. And the city officials were scared. Roman citizens have rights. There's certain privileges that come with that. And they had violated those. One of those rights was that they would have fair trial. Another one is they would not be treated. You cannot be beaten as a, a Roman citizen without just cause. That was the punishment of slaves. In fact, there's a story of a Roman governor who actually punished Roman citizens like you would slaves, and he was tried and executed for doing that. Roman citizenship was a big deal. Lots of privileges. But also some responsibilities. We often don't think of responsibilities when we think of citizenship, do we? We think more like Calvin does here. I think the last time I was here I mentioned that I'm a good Calvinist and then I popped up Calvin and Hobbes and and that's the kind of Calvin I usually read. But here it is. It's an outrage that six-year-olds can't vote. Here I am, a U.S. citizen with no voice in our representative government. Uh, You're concerned about the direction the country's headed? No, I just want a bigger piece of the pie. Usually when we think of me as a citizen, that's what we think of, right? Uh, Not quite so much in terms of Roman citizenship. They believed in Roman values, lived out wherever you were because you were a Roman citizen. So even though you might not live in Rome, live as if you did, wherever you were. So when Paul says to the people in Philippi, live as citizens of heaven, that would have been a little earth-shattering for them, don't you think? Here they are, citizens of Rome, living Roman values, proud of their heritage. They had come so far in such a short time, and now Paul says, oh, but wait. We have a whole different citizenship. Live as citizens of heaven, just like you would live out Roman values when you are not in Rome. Live as citizens of heaven, even though you're not in heaven, wherever you are. And that motif, although the New Living Translators When they translate that, take maybe a bit of liberty in that. That phrase isn't found in some of the more word-for-word translations, but it is found in some of the thought translations. I think they've done a good job because that motif really speaks to the people of Philippi, and it's inundated through the rest of the book. You get to chapter 2, and Paul says, have the same attitude, the same heart, that was in Christ Jesus, who, even though he found himself to be in the form of God, he had all the rights and privileges of God, lowered himself and took upon him the form of a servant, a slave. Do you imagine how that sounded to the people of Philippi? Their parents, their grandparents had won freedom. They had been slaves. To think about going back to slavery? Not a chance. And Paul speaks of lowering and taking on the form of a servant. Paul gets to chapter 3 and he lays out all of his accolades. He says, I was a a Jew. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. And he goes on and he talks about all his accolades and how his education went. This was commonplace in Philippi. They had statues all over the, the city with all of these listing of attributes and accolades and titles of all the important people. Why? Because that was one of the the privileges of being a citizen, you got to laud who you were. And Paul goes, oh yeah, by the way, they're useless. In fact, he goes and he uses a word that we would describe best as human excrement to say that's what they're worth in comparison to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul is encouraging the Philippians to turn almost every value that they have on its head and live in a whole different way. Live to their full potential. And I wonder if that's not exactly the same kind of thing he'd be saying to us. So what, what does that mean for us? And that's in the time that we have left, I want us to think now we've heard what it meant for the people of Philippi. What does it mean for us if Paul were to say to us today, live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Well, first, I think it means being people who embody good news, right? That seems to be exactly what he's saying. Conducting, living out our lives every day with good news. In our day and age, I'm not sure that Christians are necessarily first thought of as good news people we've got this whole evangelical word. And right now, that word seems to have been captivated by a whole right-wing political ideology in the States that doesn't really sound too much like good news. And we're not even sure sometimes if we should use that word anymore. It doesn't lead with the right connotations. Sometimes I wonder if people wonder if we're the people who leave no hope because we lead with the bad stuff. We lead with sin, wrath of God. And some of those things certainly need to be talked about. But when we lead with those, what does that say to the public who don't know Jesus? I want to preface a quote I'm going to put up on the screen in just a moment. It's a quote that comes from an ardent atheist, a guy by the name of Sam Harris. I don't agree with the quote. I think he badly overstates things. But he dramatically wants people not to believe in God. And in his perception, this is one of the reasons why. And I want you to listen to it because I think this perception sometimes permeates our culture out there. Here's what Sam says. 44% of Americans are confident that Jesus will return to earth sometime in the next 50 years. Given the most common interpretation of biblical prophecy, it is not an exaggeration to say that nearly half the American population is eagerly anticipating the end of the world. This faith-based nihilism provides its adherents with absolutely no incentive to build a sustainable civilization, economically, environmentally, or geopolitically. We are living in a world in which millions of Christians hope to soon be raptured into the stratosphere by Jesus so that they can safely enjoy a sacred genocide that will inaugurate the end of human history. Ouch. That's harsh. And badly overstated in my mind. But that's how some people view us. And if we aren't aware of that, and if we lead with the wrong stuff, we don't sound like very good news people, do we? So what is the good news? Well, some people thought this was pretty good news the other night. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How many of you listened to this speech? Uh, A couple of you, yeah? I I didn't hear it live. I went back after the fact and listened to Oprah's Golden Globe speech because everybody was like, oh, Oprah for president. (laughs) I don't know if that's going to work really well either. Uh, But uh, at the same time, I wanted to know what the big deal was. And so I went back and I listened to this speech. And, And it was a good speech. And Oprah speaks well. She's a good orator. But the element that seemed to bring the people together was the hope in the speech. That there's a light at the end of the tunnel and there's something to aim for and and we could get there. And I wonder if that speech had been given at a different time, different place, when there wasn't quite so much negativity going on in the news media and the culture right now, if it would have resonated quite as well. I don't know. But the fact that she held out hope where it seems like there's a bunch of darkness was profound. And I thought, huh, isn't that what we're supposed to be about? We're supposed to be the good news people. We're supposed to be the ones when we talk about Jesus and everybody goes, oh man, that's good news. And that's what Bruxy Cavey has tried to do in this new book. It's a book entitled Reunion. Uh, Bruxy Cavey is a pastor uh, in Toronto at a church called The Meeting Place. And this book, if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend you reading it. It's subtitled. And i got to turn around because I can't read the print back there. The Good News of Jesus for Seekers, Saints, and Sinners. And Bruxy, in this book, really wants to just highlight what the good news is. And so he starts with three different definitions. A one-word definition. Can you guess what that one word might be? Okay, that's a good word. Yeah, another good word his word is oh, maybe a better word but his word is Restful. Jesus <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like one of those Sunday school answers you know the kid who's asked a question in Sunday school and he goes well it's either Jesus or a squirrel and since we're in Sunday school it's got to be <laughs> Jesus right <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like that but his one word definition of good news, Jesus. He said, let's, let's flesh that out a little bit. Three words. Jesus is Lord. That really was what the Greek word that we get that word good news, evangelical, evangel, the good news Where we get that from was the announcement, the birth announcement of a new king who would bring about new kingdom values. And so I think Bruxy's captured that pretty well. Jesus is Lord. There's a new king. And he wants people to live in this new kingdom and live out new kingdom values. Bruxy goes on to flesh that out a little more in the back end of his book, and he's got a 30-word definition that I think really helps us understand what good news is. This is how he says it. The 30-word definition, Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion. Religion's all that man-made stuff that we attempt to make to get to God, right? So we can share in God's life. And Bruxy says that first phrase is the grounds, the foundation of the gospel. The four things in the middle are the gifts, what we get from the good news. And the last phrase is the goal the goal of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is so we can share in God's life. I think that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about people who embody, who conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the good news. He's talking about imaging good news, imaging Jesus, isn't it? My kids... We're home recently. Uh, I've got, my, my son is still in high school. He lives with us, but my daughters live in Alberta. And so they came home for Christmas. Uh, well, technically not home. They've never made home out here because we moved from there. and so. But they came here. And uh, they were digging through old pictures. And they happened to find a picture of me when I was about 16, which is the age that my son is now. And they looked at it, and they went, oh, Dad looks so much like Liam. That's our son. That's kind of what genetics do, right? You know, your kids grow up looking like you. They hate that, by the way. <laughs> but but they they do. They grow up looking like you. And they grow up acting like you oftentimes. Uh, we'll be sitting around at the kitchen table, and, and my son, he'll throw out this wordplay joke some kind of pun or a joke and and I'm like I was just thinking that and I say it and he's like oh now I'm just like dad yeah (laughs) the kids hate that right but that's genetics we grow up being like our parents we image them and the same is true or ought to be true about us and Jesus. Sharing in God's life is the goal. Being the image of Jesus to those around us is the good news. In the free church these days, our big theme is called Revitalize, becoming a gospel sharing people. And we've taken up the challenge to say that the gospel has to start here. It never starts out there somewhere. It has to start with my love for Jesus, my love for the good news. Has the good news really penetrated into my heart, my being, so much that I actually do? Live it out every day. Because if that's not a reality, it becomes a lot harder to share good news. Not only should we be people who embody good news, but Paul goes on to talk about people who live out unity. He says it this way there in the last portion of Philippians chapter 1 for I fully expect Oh, I'm, I'm a little behind here above all you must live as citizens of heaven conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you I will know that you are standing side by side fighting together for the faith which is the good news standing together side by side with one spirit, one purpose. A few years ago, I saw a video. This picture wasn't from it, but it's similar. A video of a group of people in San Diego who decided to try and set a new world record time for building a house. They poured the foundations ahead of time, let those cure up. But from there, right to landscaping, they built a house in three hours. Three hours. It was remarkable to watch this video. Hundreds of people all working together there are people over here building a roof before the walls are fully formed over here. And there are people working on this wall and, working on wall, and people working on that wall, and people working on that wall, and people working on the inside walls. And also, everything kind of comes up all together, boom, 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 everything gets attached, boom, the roof goes on. And before you know it, it's all sided, and I mean, there's people working on the outside while people are finishing on the inside, and people are rolling outside, and It was incredible to watch. And I thought, that's what working side by side for something looks like. I'm not convinced we always work well side by side in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us this in John chapter 13. They, people who look at us and observe who we are, will know you are my disciples by your, and notice what's all crossed out with the cross, love. And if we were to finish that verse, it would say for each other, not even for everybody. When people look at us and they see radical community within the body of Christ that is so different than what they see anywhere else in the world they're going to go what and say that's good news and say there's hope there and then Peter says they're probably going to ask us a reason for that hope and we can give an answer In the free church, we got a phrase that we think helps us get a handle on this. And it says this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In all things, Jesus Christ. And in essence, this is how it plays out. We believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing him is so important that We can agree to disagree on a lot of stuff and love each other through it. Because there's only a few key essentials about the gospel of Jesus Christ that really matter. I think that's a recipe for helping us work side by side for the sake of the gospel. That's what I think Paul's talking about as he talks about those who live as citizens of heaven conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now we could end there. Some of you probably want to when you're going to hear the third point. Because Paul goes on and he says this right after that. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. And suddenly we get into some ugly stuff. See, I think the third thing that we need to be about in terms of this passage and living as citizens of heaven, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, is we need to be people who are willing to face opposition. If we are to continue to read right down to the end of the chapter, we get these two phrases here later on. Paul talks about, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, back to privileges of citizenship, not only that privilege, but also the privilege of suffering for him. How many of us think suffering is a privilege? (laughs) Not many, do we? Paul somehow had a different view of suffering, especially when it came to suffering for the cause of Christ. This wasn't just any suffering. That's why he says two chapters later in in chapter 3 that All of the stuff that he has, names, titles, accomplishments, is nothing. And we like to end that one early too, right? It's nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And we end it. But there's also the fellowship of his sufferings on the tail end of that verse. Now, we in North America, we've been pretty immune to suffering, for the most part. Some of our brothers and sisters in other places in the world, not so much. But I wonder if the day isn't coming when we will face more opposition. We see things like the new legislation for... The grants for summer interns, Uh, many of you probably have heard of this. Uh, The Trudeau government uh, typically has grants for summer interns and this year they say unless you can check off that you respect a woman's right to have an abortion, you can't apply for this money. That's going to limit a lot of faith groups from getting that kind of grant money. Now... We could debate whether that was a good thing in the first place to get government, rely on government grant money to do our ministry. But at the same time, we are often faced with these kinds of opposition things now. And our response, many times, is between these two fight or flight. And I love BC's take on this. He's looking in the dictionary there. Fight or flight, a state of being observed an average of seven times for each half hour of browsing social media. Social media is a scary place, isn't it? And we fight or flight there, don't we? But we also do that when we face opposition for Christ sometimes. Some groups are actually suing the federal government over that funding. Now, one of our people in our office kind of snarkily, you know, jokingly said the other day, we should save our efforts until we find something we really need to sue the government over, like clergy residence deduction. Yeah, He's being snarky, of course. But uh, we fight about those things oftentimes, don't we? And we go to war against the people that we're supposed to be good news people for. And maybe that's why they don't always think we're good news people. The other option, flight, is something we also do quite often. I was just handed a book not long ago called The Benedict Option. Anybody read it? Good, good. That's not a really good book, I don't think. Because here's the premise of it. Just like Benedict back in the Middle Ages set up all the monasteries to kind of huddle all the the holy people that wanted to follow Jesus until the Dark Ages got better so they could reintroduce Jesus into the culture, we should do the same thing as the authors uh, intent. He says that we should, you know, get all these little Christian enclaves together and kind of hide out from the world and maybe in a hundred years or so when they're ready we can introduce Jesus back into the culture. And like, what? Really? But that's flight. And people have done that since the days of the Essenes back in Jesus' day. And neither of those options is very good. Because if Jesus truly is Lord, that's that three-word definition again, Jesus is Lord. And if we really believe that, then fighting becomes a far less less, uh, good thing, isn't it? We don't want to do it anymore because frankly, if Jesus truly is Lord, he's going to take care of it. I don't have to fight. I just have to share the good news that Jesus is Lord. Jesus takes care of the rest of that. He's already Lord. And if Jesus really is Lord, I don't have to flee because he's going to look after me because he's really Lord. So if Jesus is Lord and I believe he is, then I can go about living daily for the king. Being a person who embodies good news. Being a person who lives in unity. And being a person who humbly, graciously, yet steadfastly stands in the face of opposition. Martin Luther King celebrated a day, uh, his day, his holiday named after him not long ago. It's a guy who humbly, graciously, and steadfastly stood in the face of opposition, didn't he? Never fighting back, but winning the day by allowing people to see how evil the oppression looked when it came because he just took it i wonder if that's not a bit of a model for us when the opposition comes can we knowing that Jesus truly is lord say we put our hand and we put ourselves in your hands god and we can take it And then live daily for our king. I think that's what being citizens of heaven is about. Kind of sounds like the Lord's prayer, doesn't it? Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your Holy Spirit as he takes your word and lets it work around in our hearts and minds. And I pray that he would continue to do that. Challenge us with it, we pray Father, we, we thank you for this church. I love coming here. It's a vibrancy and a passion for you that I think is awesome. I just ask that you would bless them everything they're doing. And I know they have a heart for this community. And I just pray that you would encourage them to continue to stand side by side with each other.
0: of our heart tonight.